The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investsmart.com.au. Welcome to this week's edition of Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Senior Portfolio Manager of Investmart. And as loyal followers will know, Alex is currently on annual leave. So today I've got a guest host. His name's Gaurav Sodhi. Uh, I can't even remember your full title of Intelligent Investor, Gaurav. Uh, I think it's these days, it's Deputy Head of Research, but we're all analysts here and that's all we want to be. All right, so I brought you in, Gaurav, today, uh, one, to be a guest host, but also normally when I'm with Alex, we just talk a lot about stock ideas, which tends to fall down to small cap stock ideas. This week's a bit different in the sense that we're going to talk about a few more general things, a few more international aspects, and also do what I probably, I think I may have promised uh, the Intelligent Investor audience when mm. I first uh, joined, rejoined Investmart last August, was have a bit of a chat about my experience running or helping run an international fund for a few years. Yeah, and who better to, to ask those questions than me? People may not know, but Nathan used to be my boss for many years and um, <laughs> quite a terrifying one at that. I remember when I, when I first started, I don't think I had um, – I went from Hoff, Greg Hoffman, who was the first boss. It was just, you know, jovial, um, cracking jokes in the office, buying you cake every day, to Nathan, who'd tear my, my work up, throw it back at me and say, do it again, do it again, do it again. Never heard – never have so much work come back to me. But um, that was the way I learned. And so I actually I credit Nathan with, um, with a lot of my um, – uh, investment progress over the, the last several years. So it's really good to have you back, Nath. I appreciate it, Gaurav. Yeah. It's good to have a, a good host on this uh, Investment Second Best podcast. <laughs> well, you have to explain that joke to me. I've, I've heard it and I don't quite get it. What, what's the deal with that? Is so, that? That's not our podcast, is it? No, so so Alan and Evan started oh, their podcast yeah, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Okay, yeah. And uh, Greg, our producer in Melbourne, yeah. said this is the best podcast within the business. So Alex and I just lay claim title to the Second Best Podcast. I think we're going to have to fight you for that, surely. <laughs> You have an advantage because we're behind a paywall, so we have to find a way of gleaning quality without just looking at the number of listens because that doesn't mean anything. Who cares about that? <laughs> Thanks for coming, Gaurav, anyway, so yeah, we're going to talk about. My pleasure. Well, um, let's talk about your experience while you were away because you were at II for a long time. I think it was the first investment job you had here, right? Yep. So we both came through, um, well, you, you much earlier than me, but we both were in doctrine in the same sort of value investment philosophy. So I want to talk to you f- um, about how – that's changed because I know my view of value has changed. I'm sure yours has too. But before we get there, for me, one of the big changes would have been for you to go off and do international investing where for a long time, you know, we were doing just Australian stocks. That must have been an incredible change. Yeah, I think um, the biggest mistake you can make when you start investing internationally is there's just so many choices. You don't know almost where to start. Yeah. And your attention just gets dragged all over the place. There's always a market somewhere that's having a big fall, which tends to attract value investors. But there's also so many industries that require a lot of work. So one example would be the cable industry Mm. in America, which uh, took an enormous amount of work to unpack some of these companies. Uh, One, the holding structures for a number of these were really complex in themselves. Uh, There was was stocks called tracking stocks, Mm. uh, which sort of tracked the underlying performance of another business. And they had very, very complicated shareholdings uh, to do with um, certain personalities in, the, in America. Uh, but also just the cable industry itself, it's, it's not an industry that we have in Australia. 
uh, these, the cable industry, the cable TV industry, essentially goes back four decades. And so back when they wanted to start cable TV, they actually dug into the ground and put in the wires. Now, we've never really had that done for TV purposes in Australia. We're getting it done for internet purposes. Uh, but in a sense, you had these cable companies that had uh, pressure on them from potentially new ways to provide internet in the home. You had falling ratings for cable TV shows. Uh, but at the same time, the way to deliver fast broadband to yeah. the home was still by the old cable wires. So you had sort of headwinds and tailwinds uh, battling each other at the same time, but you also had to start in an industry from complete scratch where you knew nothing. Uh, and then on top of that, you had these really difficult uh, ownership structures. So if you're going to do this sort of stuff, like you've got to be prepared to put in the time. I almost feel as though that's an advantage, though, because taking your cable example, right, the, the value in some of those businesses was not necessarily from the TV content and the earnings made from that content. It was from having the cable in the ground and all the alternate uses, delivering broadband and all these alternative uses you could make from it. So if you have that knowledge um, already in the US and you've unpacked those businesses there, can't you then take that and multiply it across so many other markets? You can, so absolutely. So uh, one way we did that was we went into Latin America, mm. uh, and had exactly the same thing. We went into Europe and had the same trend there. So it turns out Australia was actually the, new, the unique yeah. part of the equation, but a lot of parts of the rest of the world had exactly the same setup. So it gave you a huge advantage. And um, you know, there's lots of other industries as well that we just don't have in Australia that you get excited about. But uh, one of the big lessons for me was sometimes it's actually better to be an expert in your own uh, market. Mm. And what's got me really excited about coming back to InvestMart is getting back to a lot of small, smaller cap, smaller size businesses that can become, you know, go up tenfold or more, you know, over the next five or six years. Like that's what I found really got me excited. But at the time, I, uh, you know, it's not essentially the 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 role came up uh, for me. Essentially, it was given to me because I knew people, and so it's not often that happens. And at the time, I was really interested in uh, overseas investing because I thought that's where you're going to get some really big returns. So remember, this was back 2015. And as it's turned out, there has been some really big returns over there. So <laughs> I was right. But now that's changed. You've actually got fairly full valuations just about everywhere, uh, except probably a few um, you know, emerging markets that have been smashed over the last 12 or 18 months. Uh, but now I'm actually excited about getting back into small caps because I, what I actually enjoy is not whether I'm investing in the US, Australia or in India. It's actually just about finding stocks that can go up tenfold. That's what gets me excited. Well, what about the um, the filtering problem? I, I find this one of the things that keeps me out of international investing a lot is that you're almost forced to buy statistically cheap businesses. And in my more recent experience, that, that, that's a really terrible filter to find um, returns. You know, if, if it's if it's tracking at at uh, low PEs and high RAs, if, if if you're just ticking the boxes that every other investor is trying to tick, then you're likely to end up with the same returns as everyone else. But how else do you narrow a universe so large down to a manageable size? But to use those sort of filters. Yeah. So there's there's uh, well, the main way that, uh, that I would do if I was sitting at home on my own hmm. is just to follow what other investors are doing. There's and. Uh, like most of us are familiar with guys like Platinum, Antipodes and these big houses and you can get some really good investment ideas if you follow their quarterlies. Uh, the problem with them though is often their best ideas are the ones you don't really read too much about yeah, and yeah. they tend to be in the tail end of the portfolios mm. so they're not listed in the top 10 and sometimes they may not talk about them at all mm. but they're actually the ones that are most exciting 
But the problem is because those funds they manage, so Platinum's you know, $26 billion uh, that it manages, if it buys a position in some smaller sort of, say, a billion or $2 billion business, it's never going to be a top 10 stock for them because they just can't buy enough stock to move the needle. But as an individual investor where you want the biggest bang for your buck, you know, that's the type of stock you want to own. So as it turns out in the US, there's actually a, a particular little group uh, and I actually can't remember the names off the top, top of my head, but, uh, but one of them at least is uh, Greenhaven Road. There's one guy there called Scott Miller. Now, he manages about $80 million, mm. and he publishes his quarterlies, and he talks about his latest ideas. And for someone who's sitting at home who wants to buy something that's, you know, not a big, not Apple or Google, which you can probably buy through an ETF anyway, or, you know, you can read, in some, you know, there's plenty of funds like Platinum that have talked about that, so you don't really have to do a lot of analysis. But if you're looking for the really interesting, exciting things that are really going to make a big difference to your portfolio, following these smaller guys that are out on their own and they're independent and they're really motivated to share their ideas to uh, get people to invest with them, uh, there's a whole bunch of these people you've never heard of. Uh, and there's a, a website, I think it's called Mind Safety, and every quarter it puts up all these fund managers' quarterlies, and there's hundreds of them. But if you can go through them and pick out some of these smaller guys and just follow them, them along each quarter, like that's a full-time job following up on all those ideas itself. And that's the way I think you get back into, you know, those much smaller, far more interesting, smaller and mid-cap ideas. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. The big fundies, they are trying to keep the best ideas to themselves, closer to their to their chest and the smaller guys because they want to attract fun they're trying to shout it out to as many people as possible so yeah I completely agree like I think um, Platinum is still one of the best stock pickers in Australia mm. I, I look at their ideas and having followed up on some of the same ideas uh, through my role um, just it's really difficult to get a lot of information like some of these uh, stocks were in places like China and you couldn't even buy them as an individual anyway mm. So they've got a, uh, what I think is an unfair advantage in, in the sense that they can get into a lot of markets like India, where you need to have a, basically a professional investment license unless you're a local to invest in India, which is a real shame because there's some just absolutely incredible companies there that I'd just love to be able to invest in. But Kingfisher Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever look at the returns uh, in that country over the last 10 years of you know, most of the good companies, it's just been absolutely mm. phenomenal. Uh, just, you know, I remember there was, a, I think it was, a, you might remember this, there was a TV show, uh, I think it was going around Twitter, and a guy went onto this TV show and uh, it was basically like a sort of Sky Business type thing but in India. Mm. And this guy rings up and he says, oh, I've got this stock and I own a certain amount of shares. I haven't looked at them for seven or eight years, but my grandfather gave them to me. Can you tell me how much they're worth? And they were worth like $3 million or something. <laughs> and this bloke couldn't believe it. He didn't even know the gold mine he was sitting on. But it just hasn't been unusual for stocks to go up 40 and 50 times over mm. the last decade in mm. India. And yet people compare it to China and say, well, it's not as good as China. The development's different. It's much slower. It's got much bigger problems. Yet you look at the stock market and you don't see that at all. Yeah, well, often lots of impediments to business mean that the legacy guys actually make better returns. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It's a, it's a good hunting ground. But, look, you came back to Australia. Now you're focused back on ASX stocks. Have you learnt anything from your international foray or have the lessons mostly been just from maturing generally as an investor? Yeah, the biggest lesson for me is just really got to fight the urge to sell. I think just about every 
big mistake I've made over the last 10 years is just selling things. Yeah, j- just so everyone knows, um, while Nathan was working here, his nickname was Short Sell Bell for his perpetual pessimism and tendency to short sell everything he would get his hands on. <laughs> I remember just before I left, I had recommendations like Nanosonics, I think, might have been the last one, or mm. Clean Away might have been the last one, and Nanosonics before that. And I looked, I think I had, uh, I don't know, a speculative buy maybe up for 2%, uh, yeah. as long as the price was below 80 cents. Now, I've just sold that from our fund at $4.25 or yeah, something. I'm glad we didn't let you sell it earlier. We gave, <laughs> gave it to someone else. <laughs> but what I find interesting about that mm. is that when I first recommended it, yeah. I didn't think it would be going to over $4, but mm. if it was going to go over $4, I would have thought it would be making a lot more money than what it is, mm. which is the reason I've sold it. So um, it does tell you about you've got to be very careful about these lessons in where we are somewhere near the end of this cycle. And if you've seen the performance of Appen and WiseTech and all these, I mean, December scared people quite a bit, I think. And then all of a sudden when the market started rushing back in January, it wasn't that people just bought more banks or transurban or whatever. People really piled into these tech names as though they got the all clear green light and they don't want to miss out on, uh, you know, those potential returns and not thinking about valuation. So it's actually easy to say all the mistakes I've made over the last decade has mm. been uh, selling, but at the same time, there's still a cycle, and I feel like things are pretty ebullient, if that's the right word, at the moment. Um, but the other big thing for me too was. I remember we found religion through, uh, this is back in the day when Gareth Brown and uh, a few of us oldies were around, and we used to love Seth Klarman. Mm. So Seth Klarman's got this incredible record of managing, I don't know, it's $20 billion, but 20% a year. Just phenomenal rates of return for managing that sort of money. And we had Seth here, it was up sort of our little god that had taken over as the modern day Buffett. Oh, yeah, I remember, I heard a lot about him. <laughs> I remember the look I got when I said, who is Seth Klarman for the first time? You guys almost threw me out of the office. <laughs> I mean, we sort of lost interest in Buffett because Buffett was yeah. buying such big companies. And, mm. you know, if you're really trying to find interesting stocks and securities, then Seth Klarman was of more interest, even though he doesn't really give much away in terms of the things that he's buying. Although you can look at the 13F and see some stocks. But you never knew what he was doing with those stocks. Like he probably had short positions on the other side, so he had to be quite careful. But one of the big things that Seth Klarman talks about was uh, being liquid and having cash at the right time in the cycle. And so we are going all the time because we'd been through the GFC and we saw how incredibly valuable it was to have money during that period. I mean, we have a look at this. There's that many great businesses that have come out and gone up tenfold or twentyfold, like REA Group, just to name one. Yeah. And if you had the cash to buy into them, then it was, it was probably a once in a two generation time to buy stocks. And I think this is what actually might be setting some people up for failure because they think the next downturn is going to be just like the GFC. And if they wait for the bottom to come in like a GFC, I just don't think the bottom will get anywhere near that bad. So you may not end up buying stocks. Uh, But anyway, that's another conversation. But just on the cash, uh, so when I rocked up to Peters McGregor, uh, so what's that, four years ago now, they'd already had 30% or 25% of the funding cash for two years mm. already and thought, and most people, if you talk to a value investor in 2015, would have said, the market's expensive, this is a good time to hold some cash. Well, the performance of our fund was really poor over the next, you know, during my period there, uh, mainly, uh, not mainly, but partly because just of the cash holding. So you think this has been the longest US bull market ever and for about six of those 10 years, the fund I worked on had an average 30% cash. Yeah. So like, how do you, how do you um, keep up 
with a market like that and how do you tell people that you're running a global fund and that you've got the whole world to choose from but you can't find ideas. Um, and then at the same time, I just think the longer it goes on by having that cash, the more it becomes a noose around your neck because now if you've held that cash for three years, four years, and you've been telling people the value's coming, the value's coming, then I just think people tend to not believe you after a while anyway. But then you start saying, well, what if I put the cash to work now? <laughs> and then the market tanks, you know, like that's the sort of stuff that weighs on your mind. And so I think Warren Buffett and people like Peter Lynch, who I almost overlooked yeah, in his books because it just sounds so simple because they're mm. the first things you get to read mm. when you become a professional investor and you go, it can't be that easy. And he always says more money has been lost preparing or during um, preparing for downturns. It's actually been lost in the downturns. And I think the GFC sort of showed that it was really only the really bad over-leveraged stocks that you didn't get your money back from. But for everything else, the stock prices came back and the best thing you could have done was just hang on. So I don't really think you want to be holding large amounts of cash most of the time. Now, that's one way you've changed. I suspect also, I mean, you sort of hinted that your investment returns internationally were a bit lower than what you would have hoped. Was that because you were pursuing a different style of investing? Um, I mean, we used to be, you and I both used to be pretty hardcore um, value guys, and we used to look at companies that were statistically cheap. Um, I've sort of changed away from that, and I no longer think that's a very good investment case. If something is just cheap and that's your why you're buying it, usually automated investing, robots, algorithms, they'll pick that up long before you. Um, I'd like your view on that as well. Yeah, the, uh, so when I come in, it was a very value-focused uh, I mean, the guys that I, I sort of knew they were anyway. I mean, Michael Haddad, who got me over there, was a friend of mine anyway. Mm. And he's always looking for the cigar butt type of businesses. Yep. He, he really hadn't made the leap to buy the high quality for the most part. And that worked quite well coming out of the GFC because you had a lot of those cigar butts came good. And in the case of RHG, uh, when Steve was around for, for Intelligent Investor, I mean, it was a huge returning stock. So it worked quite well. But after sort of by 2013, 2014, those ideas had really all gone and what you're left with was, you know, detritus really, just not very low quality things that weren't growing. And so it was very hard to change the culture to actually buy newer type businesses that had much higher growth run rates. And to think ahead and think that 20 times earnings isn't expensive necessarily. You've actually just got to do the work and think about what this business is going to do over the next 10 years. Mm. and. Actually, you know, for companies like CSL, uh, which I recommended, I think it was 2011, at $33, I thought if we got to $40 in the next year or two, because I was paying 17 or 18 times earnings, which back then sounded quite expensive. I actually uh, bought on your recommendation back then. I still hold today. Yeah, well, I wish I was as smart as you. <laughs> to follow your own advice. <laughs> and and mm. uh, again, like I'd never thought in my wildest dreams that it would go to $240 five or six years later. Uh, but the thing is, it's like looking at, I just, or I always say this in presentations anyway. But the price-to-earnings ratio is the most overused and yep. abused ratio in the stock market. It's, it's a very, if you know, if it's a business like Woolworths, you know, it can be very, it can be useful because there's just not a lot of growth in the earnings, and mm. you know, you can flip the PER, PER on its head and say, okay, the earnings yield is six percent. I'll get three percent dividend and maybe one percent growth, and then maybe I'll get my ten percent. Uh, but for a business like Google, like they're just taking on new markets all the time. There's optionality in different parts of the business that aren't contributing to profit at the moment. Things like YouTube. Uh, who knows what they might come come out of their uh, driverless cars um, software that they're working on. They don't even charge for their Google Maps, which I actually think is the most the best app just about that you take for granted on your phone. Mm. And so it's just a very different way of looking at a business. That sort of free optionality. Mm. 
Uh, but thinking about what, the, what sort of earnings are going to look like in 10 or 15 years, uh, if possible, uh, because you actually might find, uh, well, what you do find is there's a lot less competition for buying stocks when you think, you know, even more than just two years out, there's very few investors that really think two or three years out, everything you read is really about the next 12 months. And so you really want to be in, doesn't matter whether you're investing in the US or Australia, you really want to be investing where there's less competition. Charlie Munger made a, um, a similar point recently. He was saying that, sort of said that the Buffett approach had been really widely dissected and widely followed, almost to the point where it stops being a contrarian approach and starts being the norm. And anecdotally, we come across that all the time. Every manager has the same list of criteria that they're all looking for, and all of them come straight from Buffett. And I feel as though those stocks were really well picked over. So what does that leave you with? How, how then do you go about trying to beat the market if finding um, you know, a, a good business with high ROE and a low um, PE is no longer the way to do it? Yeah, I'd say out of my experience uh, working on the International Fund was that it's surprising how, surprisingly how little people actually know about these businesses. So we were looking at Facebook uh, which is, even if you look at uh, a lot of the companies that are fairly well known, if you look back at the last six or seven years, and I'm talking about companies like MasterCard, Visa, and, you know, Facebook again, some of the volatility of those stock prices around certain events has been astronomical. Um, Visa and MasterCard were ha- having their regulated fees looked at, I think it was around 2013 or 14, and people got very worried about them and sold them down. And I think they're up like something like seven times. Oh, wow. And these are widely known as the best businesses in the world. They're mm. just absolutely incredible businesses. They've got absolute, just about no capex. Right? They've set up the digital rails. So all they do is clip the ticket for every transaction that gets done. And it's absolutely beautiful business. And everybody knew that. But mm. the amount of fear yep. that was bedded into those stock prices at that time uh, was an incredible opportunity. And we saw a similar thing with Facebook. Uh, recently where it got to $209, I think, was the peak. And then the latest bad thing happened at Facebook, and there's been a number of them. And all of a sudden, the stock price is back down to, I think it was 130 or $140. So there's like, you imagine, I don't know what it is, in billions of dollars that gets wiped out overnight. So even with these very high-quality businesses, you know, no tree grows to the sky. Something always goes wrong at some point, and I think people still overreact. So I don't think you have to give up on necessarily what's, you know, that sort of high quality, high ROE, but it's just you've got to pick your points and wait for those times when the business goes and in, comes into trouble. And if you don't know the business very well, it's hard to act quickly. And I think people completely, or many still are, underappreciating the uh, importance of Instagram. And there's a number of people who think Instagram could end up being more profitable than the original standard Facebook part of the business just think about the way instagram has changed the world i reckon um it's completely changed the restaurant um the travel and the clothing industry so every restaurant now designs its meal fancy restaurants you know the the with all the people like you eat nathan <laughs> the fancy ones they all design their menus based on what the food looks like on an instagram account so it's all very visual and same with holidays i've, I've heard I've, I've read articles with and read and heard interviews um, about owners of resorts who now design their marketing and their resorts um, based on the Instagram ability of of those tours. And I just think that's a complete shift from what it used to be. It, it's changed so much. So TripAdvisor is another one that's uh, definitely worth having a look at if, if you yeah. like doing your own homework. But uh, it got down to $30 per share probably 12 months ago and just wasn't very well understood. Everybody saw it as a 
online review hotel yeah. review business. Yeah. And actually, it's the other part of the business, the attractions part of the business. It's I don't think people understand very well because it's not making a lot of money yet. Mm. It makes some money, but it's improving. Uh, but they have an online uh, restaurant business, so you do all your online bookings through that. And uh, fortunate enough, I've seen some analysis that one guy did for uh, another business, and he talked about how, because I used uh, Demi or what's called now the Fork, which TripAdvisor actually bought a little while ago mm. to book restaurants because they often had 50% off. Uh, highly recommended. And Unsurprising. <laughs> <laughs> and so you go through the business model and basically mm. they clip the ticket when you make the booking. Yep. Uh, depending on how many people sit there, uh, they get another charge. Uh, how much they spend, they get a little clip of the ticket and then they get more if they book more often through the, uh, through the app, mm. basically. So it's a really, really nice business model but you've actually got to do quite a bit of work to understand that. So TripAdvisor looks like this should be a wonderful online business, but it just wasn't doing very well. But you had to really understand that. And that's why I think with international businesses, a lot of them are just much more complicated mm. um, than what they seem. Like what, what you think should be easy to understand is actually quite complicated. And you take it for granted that you've lived in Australia, so you, un- you know who NIB is and Medibank Private, mm. you know what Rio does, you know what PHP, PHP does. You just take it for granted that you've taken all this information in over such a long period. And when you start up with a new business and you think you actually know what it does, it turns out it actually works, the actual business model works out quite different. TripAdvisor is a good example of a company that to get to the, um, the investment case, you actually had to pull apart quite a bit and, and um, gain a lot of insight. It wasn't the case that, oh, well, it's only trading on a P of eight and therefore it's cheap and we should then buy it. Uh, how often... I mean, is that something that's forever changed or is, is this now, are we just going through a cycle where low PE stocks aren't working? So, uh, so I saw a chart the other day which says it's now at an official record, the difference between growth and value stocks has surpassed the gap that was there in 1999 mm. as the, uh, at the tech boom. So I don't necessarily think uh, like value investing is dead. I, I still think, to me, it doesn't matter whether earnings are growing fast or slow. Yeah. The idea is you're just trying to handicap what those future earnings are going to be. And I think what's tripped a lot of value investors up is that they just haven't recognised the value in these more modern, newer businesses. Because they don't turn up as earnings straight away. And, and, it's still, and I still think there's question marks over the sustainability of the current profit margins, for example, with a Facebook and Google, because there's going to be more competition at some point. And if you look at those businesses in particular, they've absolutely dominated online advertising uh, I think they account for something like 90% of every bit of profit or, or more. But now they're going to be more cyclical businesses than they were in the past uh, because advertising is one of the most cycl- cyclical industries that we know and they haven't been through a recession when they've had this sort of revenue at risk. So in a way, some of these older, uh, newer businesses are going to start showing some of the more older, more familiar uh, behaviour in terms of their financials. So. Uh, it's important not just to think that Facebook and Google are going to be dominant forever and pay any price. Uh, you really do need to think about the cycle. You may not be managing international money anymore, Nathan, but I'm sure you're still looking at international stocks. What's the best international investment today? Where would you, if you could put your stock in, put your money in one company, which one would it be? Uh, okay, well, that's a bit different. One company forever, uh, that's very difficult. No, no, not forever. Just, oh, not uh, forever, just at the moment? Just at the moment, Okay, yeah. so the you can, stock... You can sell later on. Okay, so this uh, stock, funnily because we've talked all about buying quality and holding for the long oh, term, dear. and this is <laughs> more of a value play. Okay. But uh, 
I like businesses at the moment with hidden assets, and we talked about that, where Google's, some of Google's businesses aren't appreciated because they're not hitting the P&L. Mm. And this is a company that has a breakup value potentially worth double what it is at the moment, mm. but it's a really complicated business. And the company is called Amia, and it's basically Amia. the frequent flyer business uh, for Air Canada Airlines. And so it's a bit like uh, you know, Qantas's frequent flyer business. Uh, but what happened, Amia was uh, listed separately from Air Canada many years ago, and they had a deal uh, to provide the points business for a long time, but that was coming up, uh, I think in 2020. And then Air Canada uh, took the rug out from underneath them and said, we're not going to renew um, the, the deal. Mm. And so they're going to build their own points business again because they could see how profitable it was mm. for Amia. And so the share price dropped from $10 Canadian to uh, around $3. And then uh, Air Canada came back like three weeks later and said, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll buy you out. Yeah. And it was, it was outrageous, right? They, they just... Um, Pretty smart though, really. Smart, but in, outrageous in the sense that I think the premium they weren't prepared to pay yeah. at all. Like the offer price was very, very low. And oh, that's a silly, yeah. There was actually some other components to the, uh, to the AMIA business and they yeah. were saying they're going to buy the whole lot for this really cheap price. It, yeah. it was outrageous. Uh, and fortunately, a, a very good investor who I think is worth following. He's a real value guy. His name is Chris Middleman and he had a decent shareholding in the business and he was the only one going out saying, Amy is made up of all these components and it's worth way more than this. Mm. This deal is ridiculous. And but, but what had happened was the uh, ex-CEO uh, also sold another piece of the AMIA business for like three times EBITDA, which was a joke. Mm. And so he was just losing value for this business completely unnecessarily and he sort of panicked. So Chris Middleman got the CEO kicked out, which was fantastic. Got his own guy, uh, a couple of his own guys on the board. They got a good CEO. And so now essentially we've got good people uh, making this decision about whether what price to sell at. And fortunately, uh, they went back to Air Canada and said, no, we're not accepting that deal. Air Canada came back and said, look, we'll just buy the Air Canada points business. You can keep the rest of your business and, and, and we're done. And so they agreed to that, which was good. It was a half decent price. So now what you've got is Amy has got all this cash from the deal and these other parts of a business. So it's got a Mexican points business as well, which is very profitable and valuable. And an independent committee went away three months ago to decide what they're going to do with the money. Mm-hmm. So will they just wrap it up and sell everything off and then you just get the cash? Or will they actually try and start uh, another business and, and grow that over time? And Chris Middleman, who has been a part of driving this and has put his idea to the board, to the independent, independent committee. Uh, so basically by the time you listen to this, it will probably be the night before, uh, we'll have the latest update on what they've decided to do. So we don't know yet. But I just feel the odds are very good where you've got smart people on the board, the right CEO, a good investor with a big shareholding, all in control. And I, I just feel like whatever decision gets made, it will be the right one. But if they decide to wrap things up, uh, there's a chance of still doubling your money. And if they decide not to wrap it up, then hopefully the business will be worth more than twice what it is. Uh, and it's, it's guys with real experience in the points, airline points business that will be trying to drive the new business. So I, I hope they know what they're doing if they go that way. I find that interesting that your choice was not a super high quality stock and nor was it a super cheap stock. It was a stock where sort of uncertainty meets optionality. And, that, and so complicated. And it's complicated, yeah. yeah. That seems to be the way a lot of... I've noticed a few of your investment theses are that way. They're, they're about 
uncertainty and optionality coming together at a reasonable price rather than certainly not statistically cheap. I haven't heard you talk about just a low PE multiple for a very long time. The thing is, I just find it very hard to see how you're going to lose money over the long term from here when I feel like it's trading at half the value of the businesses that it owns and you've got this potentially free option that hopefully is an option and not something negative over time, but if they decide to build a new business. Well, if you follow Nathan's advice and it doesn't work out, you know where to send your complaints. (laughs) Um, Look, speaking of complaints, this is probably the longest skin in the game you've ever done, I reckon. So we should probably wrap it up pretty shortly. So this is interesting. So who's actually going to do the wrapping? I think you should do a wrap it up because uh, uh, no, I should do it. Uh, Thank you very much, Gore, for helping out. Pleasure. And as always, uh, we'll be back to our uh, regular function as the second best podcast, or is it the third best podcast? I think we're going to have smart? we're going to have a competition now. I think we're going to. So if, if you don't listen to Stock Take, which is Intelligent Investors podcast, um, it's probably because it's behind the paywall. Pay your money and listen to it. It's way better than this one. And as usual, uh, Alex and I'll be back to answering your questions. So if you do have questions, uh, email them to skin in the game, all one word, skin in the game, at investsmart.com.au. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, head over to investsmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame@investsmart.com.au. at investsmart.com.au.